I want to start off by making a confession to you. This is hard for me. But I'm a nerd. It's true. I'm a nerd. My family knows it. I love all things Star Trek. In particular, one of my fascinations is anything having to do with time travel. Yeah. Anybody else? Time travel? Thank you. Thank you. Solidarity. I don't know why. It just it fascinates me, the thoughts. I know Einstein believed time travel was possible. Theoretically, if you put twin brothers, one in a spaceship and one on the Earth, and you send one at the speed of light to a distant planet, by the time he comes back at the speed of light... The brother on the earth would have aged, but the aging process would have slowed down for the brother in space. How many of you find that fascinating? (laughs) I do. I think that's really fascinating. But when we think about time travel, it it, uh, causes me to think that, uh, you know, this desire to somehow go to the past and to change it, to maybe one minor thing that you change in the past could completely alter the future. That's kind of interesting thought for me, huh? And as I think about that, I think, well, the reality is that time travel is not possible in the sense that we think of it. We can't really go back and change the past. Um, And I don't think Scripture would have us even try that, but we can learn from the past we can't, we can't live back there, but we can certainly learn from mistakes that were made in the past and alter our future course based on that. And with that in mind, I would just invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians 10, and, and we want to learn some lessons from the past this morning. As I was thinking about Pastor David and trying to dovetail with where he's been in this idea of living in community, you know, I said, do you want me to just preach the next section in Matthew? And he said, no, stay out of my book. I'm just kidding. But uh, he wasn't sure where he was going to be by this time. And so I said, well, I'll try, to, I'll try to do something that I think will dovetail with where you've been. And so I hope uh, this will kind of come alongside that. So we'll look at 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 13. I think it's there uh, on the screen for you. And I'll just read through it here. We'll, we'll give a read through and then we'll talk about the context a little bit. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ." Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, And stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, 
and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. It's a very interesting passage, but what I want to see in this passage is really uh, just this idea that God has brought us together corporately, and when one person sins or a few of us sin, it affects the whole. And we'll be talking about that kind of throughout the morning here. Uh, The text before us, just a little bit of context You have to go all the way back to chapter 8 to see what Paul is talking about here. And in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is responding to several questions that they've asked him. And one of them is, what about stuff that's been sacrificed to idols? What about meat that's been sacrificed to idols? Is it okay to eat or is it not? And so the Apostle Paul goes into a lengthy discussion about what is profitable and what is not. Yes, you may have freedom in certain areas, but to use that liberty to tear down the fellowship of the body of Christ is sinful. You may be free in Christ, but the Apostle Paul says, I curb my liberty so that I don't lose some for the sake of the gospel, but that I win all. And you can see this over in chapter 9 and verse 12. If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Uh, Back up in chapter 8, verse 13. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Chapter 9, verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I might win more. And then verse 23, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. And the idea uh, we see over in uh, chapter 10, verse 23, he kind of summarizes this principle. And he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. And the idea of edification here is that which would build up, not the individual, but the body of Christ. Those things that I'm free to do, yes, I'm free, but if my freedom, and I'm abusing my freedom, causes the body of Christ division, then I'm not going to exercise that liberty, Paul says. I'm going to refrain. I'm going to curb my liberty. So the text before us this morning sort of takes place in the midst of all this. Corinth, uh, there were some there that recognize that there are no such thing as idols, and therefore meat sacrificed to an idol doesn't mean anything, right? So why not eat it? Well, that would be great if it weren't for the Gentiles that were coming out of paganism, 
who are now coming into the church. And so you have some eating meat and some not, and others who have left the uh, the paganism now being drawn back into paganism because they think they're eating meat sacrificed to idols. So, so exercising that liberty in this context is causing some people their faith to be shipwrecked. And the Apostle Paul says, this is, this is not good. This is not good. These types of things that we, yes, we're free, but we're not free to cause division in the body of Christ. And so as we look at this text, there's some, there's some real principles behind this that I think we can draw and learn from. And so this morning, like I said, we're going to we're going to learn two lessons uh, from those that have gone before us uh, so that we might not repeat the tragic mistakes of the past. That's where we're going this morning. And the first lesson that I want you to see in the text is that the Spirit indwells us corporately. This is a big uh, thing for the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. And here he's going to draw on the Exodus narrative and I'm not going to take you there, but it's in chapter 13, sort of there and following. He sort of encapsulates it, summarizes it for us, and helps us to try to get our arms around the entire thing. So Exodus 13, and the focus is that Israel has experienced God's spiritual blessings corporately. That's his big point that they all went through these experiences together, and together they were redeemed as a whole, and they were made one under the guidance and protection of God. And so notice the word all in the text. He uses it five times. Anytime you're looking at the Scripture, you're always looking for repetition. You're looking for patterns. And as you look at this text, it jumps out um, sort of, well, it does to me anyway. As you're looking at it, it jumps off the pages of Scripture. This contrast between all... Uh, verses 1 to 4, and verse 5, yeah, with most. You see that? All, 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 but most. With most of them, God was not well pleased. So verse 1, in particular, the fathers were all under the cloud. And that is, Israel was, they were covered, they were guided by the presence of God as they journeyed through the wilderness wandering, Right? We know this. We, these are familiar stories that the Apostle Paul is kind of pulling forward. We know that Israel followed the, the cloud by day and the fire by night, right? And so uh, Israel was all under the cloud of God's presence. Verse 1 again, all passed through the sea. In other words, they had all experienced this miraculous deliverance. You remember the parting of the Red Sea? You've seen the movie The Ten Commandments, right? So when the nation came out of Israel, God brought them through the Red Sea safely. They were all miraculously delivered. The sea came over and crushed the entire Egyptian army. You remember that. And in the same way, we could say that the church uh, was sort of born miraculously, that, if you will, God's deliverance uh, for us as a whole was miraculous, especially for the early church. They, They clearly felt that sense that God had done something amazing in a miraculous deliverance of the church. Uh, Verse 2, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And notice it doesn't say Israel was baptized in the sea. It says Israel was baptized into who? Into Moses. 
into a spiritual head. They were baptized into Moses. They were all united with a spiritual leader, a spiritual head. And in the same way, believers are baptized into the body of Christ, uh, baptized in the Spirit into one body with Christ as our head. So he's drawing parallels here with this Old Testament narrative, and he's, he's trying to not, not say that the church replaces Israel or any of that garbage, but what he's saying is that there are similar parallels in the way Israel was delivered and made into a unit and the way the church was delivered and made into a unit. Okay, verse 3. I know I'm whizzing through this text, but I'm really after really the nugget of the text. So I'm not treating this in the typical exegetic. I could, I could go back and I could detail every one of these things for us, and it would probably take us a year to get through this passage, but I'm trying to get to what the main vein of the passage is. And so hopefully that will come out as we continue. Verse 3, all ate the same spiritual food. And you remember the wilderness wanderings? They ate the manna, right? God provided them manna. Well, Jesus is what? John 6. He is the bread of life. He is the bread that comes down out of heaven. He is the spiritual food. He tells those to eat and drink him. Right? Spiritual food. In verse 4, all drank the same spiritual drink. And that is the accompaniment of Christ, if you will. Now, I always kind of had in my mind this vision that Christ was like this, this boulder, you know, that kind of followed Israel around the desert. You know what I mean? But that's not what this is talking about. Jesus doesn't have to be literally a lump of a rock. Um, it's talking, this is a, what we're talking about here is like a gigantic cliff. It's, it's, uh, it's a huge precipice that, that water comes off of. And it's talking about Christ as provision. He, he provided water for the nation of Israel. He was a provider for them in the midst of their wilderness wanderings. He wasn't literally a rock. Now, in the same way, 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. if you just want to turn to the right a little bit, it says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. So, a lot of individual units brought together into one corporately. That's the idea. The Spirit indwells us corporately. That's what Paul is after here. Now, notice the language. Look at the text with me. He talks about the cloud. He talks about baptism. He talks about spiritual food. He talks about spiritual drink and the spiritual rock. Um, and the idea that Paul is trying to get after here is that all of Israel corporately experienced the same thing. They all had shared blessings. But, but then you look at verse 5 and it says, But nevertheless... Even though they had all these blessings, God was not pleased with most of them. With most of them. And uh, he's using this, if you will, as a slapdown for the church at Corinth. Because God was not pleased with most of them. Uh, this church had been founded, and they were straying, and they were divisive, and there were factious 
And there were problems all over the place in Corinth. They were immoral. And so Paul is bringing this text to bear as kind of a rebuke. A rebuke. Let's not repeat what Israel did, folks. Let's learn from the mistakes of the past. So despite Israel's newfound liberty, if you will, from from Egypt, this newfound liberty, some in the group used it as, as a way to cause harm to the whole. And this is what Paul is after. Liberty should never be abused so that it has consequences on everybody. And, and we're going to continue to look at that this morning here. So in the same way, the church at Corinth had, um, and us by extension, had received the Holy Spirit. They had been baptized into Christ under one head. Um, and yet there, there's this group of people that want to exercise their liberty in a way that's tearing down the body. And Paul says this is, this is just unacceptable. So the emphasis of the New Testament is this. The Spirit indwells the church as a group, not so much you as an individual. It just I, You need to think about that for a minute. Let that sit. Let that simmer. We're going to talk more about it in just a minute, but let me repeat that. The, the emphasis of the New Testament is that the Spirit indwells the church corporately, not so much you as an individual. You're one brick in the building, if I could say it that way, and the Spirit occupies the whole building, not the one brick. Okay, that's the emphasis of the New Testament. And unfortunately, we tend to view things from this sort of westernized, individualistic mindset, right? So for us, everything is very individual. It's me and Jesus. It's all about me and my personal growth, my personal sanctification, and my relationship with the Lord. It's all about us as individuals. And, but the emphasis of the New Testament is completely opposite of that. It's us as a group. And the Spirit indwells us And that's why division is simply not to be tolerated in any form. Think with me about two of the most prominent uh, motifs in the New Testament that describe the church. Okay? They, They use metaphors, illustrations to describe what God has done in the church. And one of them is the temple or the spiritual house motif. The I had I had Matt read that passage in First Peter for a reason. Uh, Think with me. Go back to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. I'll pick it up in verse 19 just for a run at it. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. And he's speaking to the Gentiles here. The merging of Jews and Gentiles together. That's the whole point of the book of Ephesians. These two groups think in terms of Arabs and Israelis being brought together into one new man. Okay, that's what we're talking about here. Uh, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, 
having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. You see the idea there? Look at the language. There's there's this idea that the foundation, the one-time foundation was laid by the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ is either the cornerstone of the foundation or the capstone, if you will. Uh, There's debate about that. And then there is um, this idea of the whole building being built. And he repeats it, the holy temple of the Lord. And he says it's the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And you're a part of that. You're a part of that. Not you alone, but as a group, as the church, as the church as a whole, we become the dwelling place of the Spirit. Just look back uh, with me at 1 Corinthians. Look back at chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 to 20. And this is a whole discussion on sexual immorality and their toleration of it. And Paul says, it's intolerable. You can't tolerate this. One joining himself to a prostitute has implications of joining Christ uh, by his spirit to that prostitute. Can Christ be joined to a prostitute? May it never be, he says. May it never be. But down here in verse 19, he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. This is talking about plural. It's not individual. These are all you plurals. Your body, Corinth, your church body, is the dwelling place of the Spirit. This is not talking about you shouldn't drink, you shouldn't smoke, because your body's a temple. This is talking about the group as a whole is the dwelling place of the Spirit. The Spirit dwells corporately. My kids used to play with uh, Duplo blocks, you know, or Legos. You ever played with Legos? We bought our son the Millennium Falcon. I told you I was a nerd. Uh, we bought him the Millennium Falcon one Christmas. Wasn't it the Millennium Falcon? Or was it the Death Star? I can't remember. <laughs> anyway, he would dump out this big pile of Lego on the floor. This thing had like a th- over a thousand pieces, right? And, and, and he would build all these pieces. But it wasn't the Millennium Falcon until he took all the pieces and put them all together. And then it became the Millennium Falcon. Okay? And so we need to think in terms of The Spirit doesn't indwell the individual brick so much as he indwells the whole building. Make sense? The other illustration that's used in the New Testament is the body of Christ. And think with me on this. The New Testament says that we are baptized by one and the same Spirit, right? We just looked at this, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. We're baptized by one and the same Spirit into one body. Uh, the Spirit indwells us, and after that baptism, we are said to be in Him. In Him. And one author said this. He said, God's goal is the incorporation of all believers into one body 
wherein the Holy Spirit may be conceived of as the soul of that whole spiritual organism. It's an interesting way to look at it, huh? The whole body is put together, you're all a part of it, and the soul of the body is God's Spirit. Ephesians 4, 1-4 kind of taps into this same idea. If you want to flip over there. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. It's very emphatic uh, in the Greek. It's Spirit One. It's... um, It's this idea that there's no divvying up the Spirit. The Spirit indwells us as a whole. And once again, the calling is to be diligent to preserve that unity. In a sense, to tamper with the unity of the church is to tamper with the Godhead. It's a very serious offense. So let me adjust your thinking a little bit. So rather than thinking in terms of something being placed in, in you, namely the Spirit, think in terms of you being placed in something or someone. You are part of the body of Christ, and the Spirit indwells us corporately. It's a huge blow to our Western individualistic mindset. I mean, it really is. This is this, we have to think differently. That what this means is that we are part of something much bigger than ourselves. You know, we, we're products of our time, and the gospel has become largely all about the individual salvation. This person needs to be saved. This person needs to hear the gospel so they can be saved. Well, it's the gospel of the kingdom. It's the fact that this person is saved into the body as part of what God is doing now in the ages. And God has set aside Israel for a time in his program, but he has taken Jews and Gentiles for this unique time in history, and he has placed them in the same body with Christ as the head and with the Spirit indwelling them. It began at Acts 2, and it continues to this day. If you look at the book of Acts, read it carefully. When the church started, there were all those thousands of believers, right? And then it says, and then they were added. They were added. They were added. Right? And so you get to Acts 2 with the church being born of the Jews. You get to Acts 8 with the Samaritans coming in, the half-Jews, half-Gentiles. You get Acts 10. You get the Greeks coming in, God-fearing Greeks. And then Acts 19. You get the last of the old covenant believers. And each of those people groups added to the church. Added to the church. Part of the whole. They were added. So what this means is that we're part of something bigger than ourselves. We are are interdependent on one another. We need one another. Right? We're, We're links in a chain. We're part of a body. 
And the Spirit indwells us corporately. That's the lesson we need to learn from the first five verses. The second lesson is that when we sin, our sin occurs in community, verses 6 to 13. Now, unfortunately for Israel and the church of Corinth, the sin of some affected the whole. And this is Paul's point here, that, that you're made one, but some of you, because of persistent sin, Paul says, you're hurting the whole bunch. And we see that over in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, when we talk about the, the Lord's table, right? And, and he says down in 1130, For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. And the reason for that is God's temporal judgment, because there were some in, in the body that were being divisive. They were not valuing the poorer brethren. They were, they were eating everything before they were even able to come and partake. And so God was judging the Corinthians for their failure in this way. And this is what Paul is saying. The sin of a few affects the whole. Our sin occurs in community. So Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, hey, listen, you know what? Yes, there's freedom in Christ. There is freedom in Christ. There is no doubt about it. But it's not libertarian freedom uh, to do whatever your evil heart craves. Okay? He says that right here in the text. Verse 6. These things happen as an example so that we would not crave evil things as they also crave. It, it's not libertarian freedom to do whatever you want at the expense of others. It's just not. And so here in the text, Paul cites four tragic examples. And as I said, each one of these could be a sermon in itself because of the topic involved. But I want to keep the main thing the main thing. There's one point that Paul's after in all of this, and that is the sin of a few affects the whole. So it's not so much the sin itself that he's focusing on. These aren't like the unforgivable sins. What his point is just that, that to consider your brethren before yourself. So the first tragic example we see is idolatry in verse 7. And notice here we see the contrast. Uh, you know, we saw all, 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 remember? And now, verse 7, you see some, 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 some. Major contrast. So he says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Now this, uh, the verb action here is the idea that some of them have started to go back to idolatry, and so this is something that needs to stop. It's an action in progress that needs to stop. And apparently some of the Corinthians were tempted to do more than simply eat meat at the pagan temples. They were actually being lured back into pagan worship. Because some of them were using their libertarian freedom uh, and eating the meat and not considering their brethren who might be lured back. So apparently there was some idolatry going on here. So Paul recalls to mind Exodus 32, in particular verse 6. This is right there in the Old Testament. It's a direct quote. 
Uh, the people sat down to eat and drink. Uh, what that means in particular is that on this, in this scenario, on the eve of Israel's liberation from Egypt, Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Decalogue from God. And, and he's giving him instructions on how to build a temple. And while all this is going up there on Mount Sinai, the people are down below having a luau. They're, they're having this, this gigantic feast of celebration. And they, they talk Moses' brother Aaron into making a golden calf for them. You remember this? And the golden calf was a, a fertility god of the, of the pagan nation. So make us this golden calf, Aaron, so that we can bow down and worship it. And so they, they, they sat down to eat and drink, it says. They, they had this wondrous celebration. Uh, you remember Aaron's excuse, right? Well, I, I threw the gold in there and it just sort of popped out. And so what, what does Moses do? I mean, he comes down from the mountain, he crushes the Ten Commandments, he grinds the malt, he pulverizes it, makes everybody drink it. It's a little harsh. But it says that they stood up to play. This is interesting language. I always wondered what this meant. But what does it mean that they stood up to play? They sat down to eat and drink and they stood up to play. Well, let's just say that based upon the fertility practices in the area, this was a fertility god. Let's just say it was a little more than a luba. It was uh, an origin. There was gross sexual immorality. And Moses tells us that the people were, they were loose. They were out of control. It's like somebody took them off a leash and they just went for it. It's a ter terrible, gross situation. It was as bad as it could have been. Out of control idolatry, gross sexual immorality, and on the eve of their honeymoon with God. Terrible, terrible situation. And according to Exodus 32.28, some 3,000 of the men were executed because of this. This little foray into sin, if you will, this little dalliance cost 3,000 men to lose their lives. So Paul's point in reminding the church of Corinth of this scene, that the idolatry of some, in this case most, had disastrous consequences on the nation of Israel. Disastrous. Sin occurs in community. So, when you sin, it affects the whole. This is where I came up with the sermon title, United We Stand, Divided We Fall. United, we're one. One in the Spirit. But when some of us give you off and, and enter into sinful practices, it affects the whole body. It affects all of us. Second tragic example is sexual immorality. Verse 8. The Apostle Paul says, Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. There's the sum again. Some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. So the Greek here, this idea of acting immorally is the word pornuo. And it, it involves sexual immorality. It involves fornication. 
the idea of sex outside of marriage. You'll remember that Corinth was the location of the temple of Aphrodite. And every night, prostitutes would come down out of the temple and they would work the city, as it were. They would apply their trade. So the church at Corinth had problems, real problems, in the area of sexual immorality. Uh, just think back with me in chapter 5. Verse 1, it's reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kindness does not exist even among the Gentiles. Someone has his father's wife. He's a stepmother, but nonetheless, and even the Gentiles wouldn't do such things. Paul says, this is terrible. This is terrible sexual immorality. You look over at uh, chapter 6, verses 15 to 16. And we spoke of this earlier. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. So we're talking about cult temple prostitutes. Coming down out of the city and the Corinthians are joining themselves to them. Declaring, hey, I'm free in Christ. Right? Free in Christ. I can do whatever I want. Right? License to sin. It's, a, it's just a wrong view of what Christ has done. It's a wrong view of grace. It's cheap grace. Chapter 7 and verse 2. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. To avoid the sexual immorality that's going on in the church and in society. You know, the Corinth was so bad that they actually came up with a new word for that. It meant, it was a verb, to Corinthianize, right? To Corinthianize meant to be debauched. So they were very familiar with sexual immorality. So the Apostle Paul recalls to mind Numbers 25, 1-9. And uh, again, I don't have time to go to all these Old Testament references. We just don't have time to read through them, so I'm summarizing them. But this takes place while Israel was on the borders of Moab. Okay, they're on the borders of Moab, and it's in the text back there says that they played the harlot with the daughters of Moab. They played the harlot. They offered sacrifices to their gods. They feasted and they bowed down to their gods, the Moabite gods. So like, like harlots, they joined themselves to Baal of Peor. And it just did nothing but provoke the Lord to wrath. So God ordered Moses to slay the leaders of men who had committed this heinous act. Take the leaders and execute them. And, and while they're weeping over the loss of these men, over the loss of the men who had just been slain, the text says that this man, Zimri, an Israelite man, had the audacity to, to bring a Midianite cult prostitute into the camp. They even named her. Her name's Cosby. Not Bill Cosby. It's spelled differently. But this cult prostitute by the name of Cosby right into the camp, right into a tent, right in broad daylight, and commit sexual immorality right in front of the whole camp. 
the audacity, the brazen nature of the sin. Obviously, uh, it was offensive. So Phinehas, uh, the son of Eliezer, he comes in with a spear, he catches a couple in the act, and he spears them both through. And he, in doing that, stayed the plague that had started on the nation. Now, obviously that's a, it's kind of hard to think in those terms, right? It's hard to think of such things. But this is what Paul is drawing from his Old Testament here. Now, interestingly, if you look back a little ways, this was the false prophet Balaam's tactic to bring Israel down. Balaam knew that he could not curse Israel, so he directed the Moabites to actually go in and cause Israel to sin this way in order to provoke the, love of the Lord's anger against his own people. Interesting tactic, huh? Well, the point in all of this is that this little dalliance, again, in sexual immorality, uh, by some, caused the whole group to suffer. And 23,000, Paul says, 23,000 Israelites fell in a day because of this. It's hard to conceive of those kind of numbers. You know, they lost leaders, they lost family, they lost friends, and devastated the whole group. So, Paul's point is that there are limits to your freedom. There really are. There are limits to your freedom. And this lack of self-control in the area of sexual immorality by a few affected the whole tragedy. It's a disaster. Again, the point is, sin occurs in community. United we stand, divided we fall. And in this case, 23,000 fell. The third tragic example is trying the Lord, verse 9. So he says, Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Trying here means simply to put to the test. It means to put the Lord to the test. So Paul says to the Corinthians, you're, you're free in Christ, but, but learn from the past. It's not wise to test the limits of God's patience. God is forbearing, He's merciful, He's patient, but, but you put Him to the test and it may not go well for you. And there were some in Corinth who, who sort of rationalized the exercise of their right to eat in the temple by saying, well, there's no temporal punishment right now, so it must be okay. God's not doing anything about it. Right? It's kind of like drawing a line in the sand and just saying, I dare God to step over that line. So nothing bad has happened yet. I might as well go for it. The day is coming. The day is coming. So Paul recalls for them Numbers 21-4 and following. And you remember, the Israelites, they were going to go around the land of Edom and take a longer route. And the people got impatient because of the longer journey. They didn't want to take the long route. They wanted to cut through Edom and completely disobey what God had told them. They were supposed to go around. Go around. And they say, no, we want to go through. 
And they wanted to defy what God had commanded them. And because of their impatience, uh, the text tells us that they began to complain against God's leadership again. They complained against Moses' leadership. They complained about the food. They complained about everything. And because of this testing of the Lord by, by rebelling against Moses' leadership, God sent these fiery serpents among them. Remember the story, right? And so the only way they could stop it was to put a bronze serpent on a standard, and as the people looked up at it in faith, they would be saved. But by the time that happened, many, the text says, many in Israel had died as a result of this testing of the Lord. And again, Paul's point is, is a simple one, right? The sin of some affects the whole. You're, you're not free to put the Lord to the test that way. Your freedom in Christ does not give you the freedom to test the Lord that way. And in particular, I think Paul had his own situation here in Corinth in mind. Corinth was one of his biggest critics of his apostolic authority. If you read 2 Corinthians, you get the idea. They were always challenging Paul's apostolic authority. And so here Paul is saying, you can't speak against God's installed leadership, and by the way, that would be me. I'm the installed leadership. I'm an apostle. This is an apostolic smackdown. You cannot talk against God's leadership this way without there being serious consequences. So, sin occurred in community. The sin of some, or many in this case, uh, resulted in tragedy for the whole group. It affected all of them. So, united we stand, divided we fall. So we've seen three tragic Examples so far, idolatry, sexual immorality, and testing the Lord. And the fourth, you see in verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did, that it literally says grumble as some of them grumbled, uh, and were destroyed by the destroyer. You know, grumbling is an ongoing problem for the people of God. This is, this is one of the biggest areas, I think, where the people of God struggle. Sadly, it simply reveals a heart that's discontent with God's provision. It's just a discontented heart that comes right out the mouth. And the Greek word for grumbling is it's the word gambuso. Uh, and it's, uh, it's what we call an onomatopoetic word. That's a big word, huh? What does it mean? Well, it, it means that it's named after the sound that it makes. It describes the sound. And so, gambusos is grumbling. It's that grumbling you hear in the background. Right? It's that idea of grumbling. It's kind of like quack, quack, or bark, bark. <laughs> Moo. Right? Those are onomatopoetic words. In Hebrew, the word for bottle is the word, is bok, bok. Go figure, right? But it's, it sounds like when you're pouring water, that right? We would say gluck, gluck. So simply put, grumbling just means 
this idea of murmuring, complaining, muttering under your breath. It's this, this discontent. And so Paul's going to show the Corinthians and us by extension that grumbling is, is a sin. It is a sin and it's a serious sin. And again, the implication of the verb's tense here is that it was already going on. So Paul is telling them to stop something that's already happened. Stop the action in progress. And we know, like I said, based upon Paul's defense of his own ministry over in 2 Corinthians, this is exactly what was going on. They were grumbling and complaining against him. They didn't like taking orders from him. They were factious. They were divisive. There were all kinds of problems in Corinth. And so Paul reminds them of Numbers 16, 41 and following. And again, in this scene, not unfamiliar territory, Israel, the Israelites grumble against Moses and Aaron, accusing them of causing the death of the people. So it's your fault that these people are dying. You're the leaders, it's your fault. Uh, and God, once again, steps in and defends his installed leaders. But because of the grumbling, because of the complaining, if you look at the text, it says God's wrath began to go forth. Another plague goes forth. And it says the destroyer destroyed them, right? And the destroyer is a reference to the destroying angel that killed the firstborn back in Egypt. Exodus 12, 23. The angel of death. And the only way that this plague is checked is, is that Aaron grabs some incense. He puts it in a censer and he goes and stands between all the corpses and the living and he offers an incense offering to God to make atonement for the people's sins. But when all was said and done, by the time it was over with, 14,700 people had died. 14,700 people had died because of grumbling and complaining in this scenario. And it says, in addition, there were people who died on account of the rebellion of Korah. So again, because of the grumbling of a few, the whole group suffered. To grumble against God's leaders, God's installed leadership, in this case it's the Apostle Paul, um, is to grumble against them is to grumble against God. He doesn't like it. He doesn't like it and he deals with it severely. So sin occurs in community. It's the same idea. Like, united we stand, divided we fall. Now, in each of these cases, the sin of some, as I said, had ramifications on the whole group. And that's the lesson that Paul wants us to see here. In verses 12 to 13, uh, back in 1 Corinthians 10, prove that. Look at those verses with me. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Again, look at the use there. The yous are all plural. This is not talking about you as an individual and your ability to avoid sin in your life. This is talking about the group as a whole. You all. 
So again, look at the, no temptation has overtaken you all. He's talking to the whole group. And he's saying the sin of some of you is going to affect the whole group. But these are common temptations that all men deal with. And you need to get control of it. And the only way to deal with it is, what is the way of escape? It's confession. It's repentance. It's forgiveness. Right? Keeping short accounts with one another. Maintaining the unity that God has established. It's, it's the humility to consider others as more important than yourself. Instead of having your own desires met, your own evil cravings, it's considering how those cravings and that appetite is going to affect everybody else. Yes, you are free in Christ. You are free. The gospel has set you free. But you are not free to commit these sins. You are not free to use your freedom as a blunt instrument. To crack other people over the head with it and say, hey, I'm free in Christ. I can do whatever I want. You can't tell me otherwise. The gospel, you know how in Ephesians 5 it says that marriage kind of is a picture of the church? Well, it's because the two have been brought together and made one. Well, what has happened to the church? We have all been brought together and made one in the Spirit. The Gospel has brought us together. Let no man tear us asunder. So two lessons we can learn from the past here. The Holy Spirit indwells us corporately, and our sin occurs in community. We need to just adjust our thinking a little bit here. Gospel is not just about your own personal salvation. You are part of something much bigger. It's not just you and Jesus doing life together alone. What you do impacts us all. What I do impacts us all. We're all one, and when one sins, we all feel it. So we need to be diligent to protect the unity that God has established. If we remain united, we will stand. If we divide, we'll fall. So, let me just give you four thoughts that rattled around my head as I was thinking about how we might apply this in a more personal for the group of us. At first, is just, take a pencil, there's just four, just four brief thoughts. Um, first is, keep your marriage strong. Those of you who are married, keep your marriage strong, because if your marriage divides, what happens? The body divides. It affects all of us. It's not just you individually, it's us corporate. You have to think in terms of that. And I'm making no judgment calls as to whether or not it was on biblical grounds or not. What I'm saying is keep your marriage strong. Work at it. Because it's for the sake of the whole. 
is saying, uh, the other thing that came to my mind is cliques. You know, cliques should not be part of the body of Christ. The in-crowd, if there's an in-crowd, guess what else there is? There's an out-crowd, right? The outcasts. Should a church be characterized by cliques within it? Isn't that divisiveness? Isn't that, I mean, I'm talking young to old here. Uh, people can section off and they can form these little cliques that are completely impenetrable by other people. And, you know, it's us four and no more. Nobody's getting in here. Or, or this is our church. This is our church. We're homesteaders. And so when new people come, uh, we don't want them working their way in, right? This is us. It's our church. We've been here longer than anybody else. Now that's, that's just a wrong attitude, beloved. It's a, it's a wrong attitude. There should not be cliques in the church. You can have deep friendships. That's certainly a wonderful thing to have. But it, the groups should be open to others joining. <coughs> Third, don't be factious or divisive. And I mean personally and doctrinally. If you have doctrinal issues, talk to the elders. But, but don't divide the congregation over doctrinal issues. And personally, don't be a divisive person. So far as it is possible with you, be at peace with all men. And fourth, watch your temper. Sit on it. Put away all wrath, clamor, anger, malice, slander. Put on tenderness, kindheartedness, forgiveness. Right? Watch your temper. Anger, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, rage, uh, intermittent explosive disorder, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> it affects the whole. And it can spread a church like that. It's like lightning striking. The unity is fragile. We need to be diligent to protect the unity that God has established. Amen. So let us pray and let's ask God to apply these words to our hearts. Our Lord and our God, we are so thankful that you have taken us and placed us into the body of Christ. That Father, your spirit indwells us. We are your people. We pray as far as it is possible for us that we would maintain and continue to edify and to build that which you have established through the blood of your beloved Son. Father, we are so grateful that you have redeemed us, that you have called us to yourself, that you have forgiven our sins. Our Father, may we be those who are forgiving people as well. And Father, may we be characterized. Lord God, may we be people who would allow others to come and just be a part of this wonderful family that is the body of Christ at Foothill Bible Church. Pray you would work in our hearts in such a way that we would, that we would welcome others, that we would invite others, that we would be considerate of others. Not for our own gain, but that the body of Christ would be so built up and so strong and that the Spirit be so active and alive here that others would know that we are followers of Christ. Lord God, we, we give all of this to you this morning. I pray that you would apply your word to each as his need this morning. For our Savior's sake.